good morning, Grace Church. Um, it's good to be here. I, me and my wife have missed the past two Sundays. We haven't been here. Um, but, you know, I am thankful that I get to preach the word that doesn't return void. You know, if I just stood up here and I just talked as Caleb would talk, I mean, it would return back to me and nothing would happen. But I'm thankful that we have a, a word by a holy God that does not return void. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And this is a very common parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And as Jesus starts this parable, it starts off like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. But I'm going to tell you a story that happened. So back up a little bit. The past week when I wasn't here, I was in Utah. Me and my wife was in Utah vacationing seeing some friends of ours, seeing her family. But I want to tell you a story. Like I said, the parable starts off like this. Two men went to the temple to pray. But my story starts like this. Two Macveys goes to the temple. Now, as you know, me and my wife have been meeting with Mormon missionaries for a while now. And we went to Utah. And while we're there, one of the missionaries that me and my wife have gotten very close to and have poured into, got sent home. Now, the thing about getting sent home as a missionary is this. There's a lot of shame in it. Embarrassment. You, you want no one to know that you're home. It's the way we could think about it. It's like someone being in the military and getting dishonorably discharged. They're not worthy. And so while we're there, all this stuff happens, and we get up with her, and we're just trying to love on her because like, she's embarrassed, her family's embarrassed, and, and while we're there, you know, we just try to love on her. And so Thursday, we spend the day with her and we leave. And then that night, we get a text from her saying, Hey, there's a brand new temple opening up in Orem, Utah. And my mom has tickets if you want to go. Now, if you know anything about the temples in Utah, there's only one group of people that can go, and that is worthy Mormons. Unless a new temple is built. Then it's open to the public for a period of time, but you've got to have tickets. And we're like, absolutely, I'm, I'm excited. Like, I'm about to go, like, the temple is the holy of holies in Mormon culture. This is where God reveals himself to his people. And so here I am, a Gentile, about to go in the temple, and I'm, I'm a little excited. And so we pull up. We pull in this parking lot. I'm supposed to get on the shuttle. And I, I don't really get embarrassed or ashamed, but I was both embarrassed and ashamed as I got on the shuttle. Because as I get on, I am wearing this. I wore this outfit just so you can picture. Like, this is not a, a nice outfit, you know. I, old, old khakis, an ugly shirt. And so I hop on this, this bus, and every guy, every Latter-day Saint is in a full-on suit. Even the kids are in suits. And as you see my face, I have a big fluffy thing on it. There was, every single guy had no beard. And then all the women were wearing dresses. And my wife, obviously, was not wearing a dress. And it's funny. We got on. Everyone was talking, having a good time. We got on. Everyone went silent. <laughs> it was just like, it's like the joy came out, and all the eyes went. And, like, we sit down. Everyone's just looking at us. I'm like, Caleb, nice to meet you. Uh, thank you. And so we eventually get there, and we go in with her, her mom, and we're walking through. I mean, everyone's dead silent. I mean, this is, this is holy. 
to them. This is sacred. I mean, so sacred that they put bags on our shoes so we didn't get the temple dirty. So everyone there had bags on their feet. So I want you to think about this picture, okay? And as we're walking through, the mom is telling us all those different things about this temple and how there's so much peace here and there's how it's holy and how this is where we find God. And you know, the whole time I'm walking through this temple, all I could think about is this parable that Jesus says. Because the whole time after we got out, the one thought in my head is how many Latter-day Saints are going to go in this temple and how many of them are going to leave and how many of them are going to go home justified? Zero. And you see, the problem is this, that so many times we, just like them, know how to do all the religious stuff. We know how to leave church and go home, but the problem is, is we don't know how to get home the right way. And that's why this morning the title is Getting Home the Right Way. How do you and me as believers go home justified before God? So let's look at Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Verse 9, it starts like this. And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying like this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was uneven, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You know, I think one of my favorite, you know, literaries in, in the scriptures is parables. I think now as a teacher, I understand parables a lot more. When I'm in my class with my students, it's easier to tell a story about what I'm trying to get them to learn rather than telling them the application and the truth firsthand. But the problem is for us is there's, there's issues with parables. They're difficult for us to understand. One, because we were not born in Israel living during this time period. So there's a cultural difference. The other reason is a lot of times the, the illustrations that Jesus uses we also can't fully comprehend. And I think the problem for us as Christians is we know too much about these illustrations. See, the two examples that Jesus uses is one, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. See, as Christians, we know that the Pharisees were the ones that, that hated Jesus the most. We know that they were the ones that heard the truth, but yet in their self-righteousness rejected it. We also know that the tax collector so many times was the ones whom were the closest to Jesus and usually the ones that responded the best. We know that, but we know too much. Because the people that Jesus was talking to didn't know this. They had a different mindset. To them, to the people he was talking to, the Pharisees were the most righteous people in all of Israel. These were the ones that when they walked by, people looked at them because they're like, that man knows God. But at the same time, the tax collector was the most hated person in Israel. See, the Jews associate tax collectors with murderers. They would say, oh, there's a tax collector, there's a murderer. That's how much they hated them. And the thing is, is 
they were traitors to their own people because they joined Rome. And yet, and they also stole from their own people. And the thing, was, the thing about that is this. No Jew in their right mind would have taken that position. Usually the ones that ended up becoming tax collectors were those that were already thieves and liars. You see, that kind of paints a different picture when we look at Matthew, ain't it? Matthew was a thief more than likely before he ever became a tax collector. And so what I want to do, just what I want to do is I want to change up the context of the parable a little bit. I want to speak this parable from a different context. I want to speak from a Boniface context. Because we're more familiar with that. So here we go. We're gonna let's read it again, but this time in our Boniface context. One Sunday morning, two men went to church. One, a member of that church all his life. The other one, a man known to be both a drunk and a drug addict. The member of that church walked to the front pew as he has always done in his life. During the service, he stands up and begins praying to himself. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people in Bonifay. I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't have one-night stands. And God, I thank you that I'm not like the drunk in the back of the church. But the drunk in the back of the church was even unwilling to look at the pastor as he was preaching, nor was he willing to look at the worship team as they were playing. But all he could do was beat his hand into the back of the pew and say, God, save me, because I'm the most worst person in here. After the, church, after the service ended, both went home. The church member went to his house. The other guy went to his apartment. But I tell you this, the drunk went home justified in the sight of God. You see, the issue is, is that we come to church and we just go through the motions. You know, when I get done preaching, every one of us is going to hop in our car and we're going to drive to our house. And honestly, we probably can drive to our house with our eyes closed because it's just we're so used to it. But that's the problem. We... We leave church and we hop in auto drive and we get home. But the problem is when we get home, we're not justified. So this morning, as we look at Luke chapter 18, let us think, how do we get home the right way? And Jesus has two examples, and through both of them, he shows us how we get home the right way. The first way we get home the right way is this. We need to be able to hear and trust divine directions. We need to hear and trust divine directions. Verse 9, And he told this to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with content. Now look, we're not giving a lot of details about the men who he's talking to. Now more than likely, there's some Pharisees there, some scribes, but there's also some of his disciples. And I think it's interesting to think about this. You know... Just because you're a disciple of Jesus does not mean you are immune to self-righteousness creeping into your life. You know, a lot of times, it's the ones that, have, that seem to have the most spiritual success in Christ that that is when the self-righteousness starts to build up. That's when they start to think, oh, maybe everything that's going on good in my life is because I'm just being such good of a Christian. But it's really just an oxymoron because here it is. The God of the universe, the God who sustains all things by his word, and the reason that these guys he's talking to are even breathing is talking to these guys who think of themselves 
as the prime reason that everything is going good in their lives. Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to me, or nobody comes to the Father but through me, right? I mean, guys, men, we're notorious for not asking for directions. You know, you take, you take a wrong turn, and your wife looks at you, you don't make eye contact. You just try to figure it out, right? <laughs> you know, she starts talking, and you just pretend you're not listening. Because we can fix it ourselves. We're good at driving. We can figure it out. But, you know, the funny thing is, is men are notorious for not listening to, to directions, but it seems like God's people is notorious for not listening to directions. Or, sorry, men are notorious for not asking for directions, but God's people is notorious for not listening to directions. You look all throughout the book of Exodus, and you see over and over again how God tells his people what to do gives them divine instructions, but yet they keep missing the point. They keep missing what God was telling them the whole time. And here's the thing. Here's two ways you can miss God. One, trust in yourselves. Two, treat others with contempt. And here's the thing. If you love others, but yet you trust in yourselves, you're going to miss God. If you trust in God, but you treat others with contempt, you're also going to miss God. See, because it's not about trusting in ourselves. It's about trusting in someone greater than us. It's not about trusting in the actions that we, that we do in righteousness, but trusting in the one that gives righteousness. I mean, Matthew 7, 21 says like, goes like this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father. And he goes on to say that on that day, many people are going to come to me and say, God, did we not do all of these different things in your name? Did we not do all of these good works in your name? And Jesus is going to say, get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know you. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. That's exactly what we do at times. We think that everything we're doing is done in righteousness, but what Jesus says is that what we're doing is actually lawlessness. Because we're trusting in ourselves. You want to get home the right way? Then we need to be able to hear and trust divine directions. The second thing that we see in this, in this text about getting home the right way is this. We need to recalculate our spiritual drive. We need to recalculate our spiritual drive. Verse 10 Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee took, stood and began praying this in regard to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, crooked, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Look at how, look how Jesus starts this parable. He says, and the Pharisee stood and began praying. The other way this is said is the Pharisee took his stand. Now think about it. We are in the temple of Israel. If you know anything about the temple, it was, put, it was set up in different courts. You had the court of the Gentiles, where the, only the Gentiles could be. The court of the women. The court of Israel, where the faithful men would be. And then the court of the priests. Where do you think that Pharisee was? That Pharisee stood as close to the Holy of Holies as he possibly could. And he, and he, got, he went up there and he stood... 
kind of like how I am. Like, y'all are over there praying, and I'm going to stand over here so everyone can look at me. And he begins praying. But again, in this context, the thing is, is all of you would want to look at him. That guy, when he prays, he knows God. And God listens to him. You know, a question I have for you to think about is this. Here this Pharisee had the opportunity to display the glorious truths of God in front of all these people that were looking at him. If you have the opportunity to stand before people and show the glorious truths of God, will you rise to the occasion or will you fumble? Because what this Pharisee did was he fumbled right at the goal line, as close to the Holy of Holies as he could possibly be, standing away, everyone's looking at him, and all he has to do is pray. And listen how he prays. He says, God, I thank you that I am not. God, I thank you that I am not. Five times in this short prayer, he says, I. I, 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 I. God, I thank you that I am not. I mean, who's taking the lead in this prayer? It's not God. It's himself. He's not even praying to God. He's praying to himself. Here he is. He has the stage. Everyone's looking at him. He can display the truths of God, but yet all he does is point it back to him. God, I thank you that I'm not like... It's like me up here like praying like, God, thank you that I'm not like everyone else in Bonifay or in Grace Church. There's no prayer to God. It's just me exalting myself in the, in the, views of, in the eyes of you. And that's exactly what the Pharisee did. We need to recalculate our spiritual drive. And when we do that, we've got to be aware of a few things. The first thing we have to be aware of is this. Be aware of objectifying yourselves in worship. Worship is not about you. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and began praying this in regard to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, crooked, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. When you come to God, do you come to God do you come thanking God that you are not like everyone else? Or do you come thanking God that he saved a sinner like you? Do you come saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like everyone else in Bonifay? Or do you come saying, God, I, th- I thank you that you saved a person like me in Bonifay? See, what really happens is our mindset needs a reality check. We need a reality check. I mean, even when God's word is preached, there's usually two responses. The first response is this. God, I thank you that I'm not like the people that the pastor's preaching about. Or the other response is this. God, I thank you for this word because I am the person that the preacher's preaching about. See, the most dangerous thing that, that comes up, the most dangerous thing that stops you and me from our worship of God, is not Satan. It's not the demons. It's not sin. It's not circumstances. But it's you and me. We are the things that so many times restrict the worship of God. Worship is not about you. It's never ha- it never, never has been, and it never will be. So be aware of objectifying yourself in worship. Secondly, 
be aware of overestimating your moral goodness. The Pharisee stood and began praying like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. God, I thank you that I'm not a swindler. God, I thank you that I'm not crooked. I thank you that I'm not an adulterer. And I thank you that I'm not a tax collector. See, this Pharisee did not pray in accordance with who God was, but rather who he wasn't. And, you know, this is the thing. This, this, is, this is me. So many times what I do is I say, God I, thank, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these people. I create a smoke screen to where I hide my sinfulness to make it look better. I start pointing at other people. I'm like, God, God I'm, not, I'm so much better than Alyssa. Like, God, if you've seen John's sin. I don't do that sin, so I, I'm good. This Pharisee is saying, God, I'm not a swindler. See? I'm not crooked. You know me. I'm not a tax collector. I'm not a betrayer of my own people. All the while masking his own sin to make it look better. You know, God, I might be a, a liar, but thank God I'm not a heretic. God, I might be, I might have all these little idols that I hold on to and that I, that I worship that no one can seize, but thank God I don't commit adultery with somebody else. God, I might be, you can fill in the blank. But you know, here's the thing. If you, if you want to compare your righteousness to the righteousness of someone else, compare it to Jesus Christ. See, nothing eliminates our moral righteousness against the, than the backdrop of Christ's perfection. See, if I want to go and I want to compare myself to, to John or to Alyssa, th- that's going to make me feel better. But if I want to truly see who I am, I, if I compare myself to the, perf- to the perfect Christ, I'm going to walk away humbled every time. In Matthew, Jesus tells a story, which is actually right after this in verse 18, about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And he says, well, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, have you kept the commandments, all of them? He said, yeah, I've kept them from when I was young. He says, well, you lack one thing. Go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor. And then follow me. And he goes away sad. I think the interesting thing about that is the way he responds to how Jesus, when Jesus asks, have you kept all the commandments? Absolutely. I've kept all of them since I was young. I mean, so many times what we try to do is we try to keep the commandments thinking that that's enough. That we keep the law and then that will suffice. But if you've ever kept the law and that was it, then you know that that does not satisfy anything for you. That does not help you at all. So we have to be aware of objectifying ourselves in worship. Be aware of overestimating your moral goodness. And and lastly, be aware of outward actions that rely solely on works. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I, get, I pay tithes of all that I get. You know, this Pharisee is saying, God, I am morally perfect compared to everyone else. 
And not only am I morally perfect, but I'm also religiously active. You know, I come to church when I need to come to church. I pay tithes every time the offering comes around. No person who's ever lived has been justified by works alone. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You know, I was thinking about the story of Lazarus and the rich man. If you know the story, both men died. One went to Abraham's bosom. The other went down to Sheol. And the rich man was looking up and he saw he saw Lazarus and began to say to Abraham, Abraham, will you please send somebody to my family to tell them what's going on? And the only thing I could think about as I thought about that is how many religious people are in hell right now pleading that somebody will go home and tell their families that religion didn't do it for me. That doing the good works was not enough. That all the times I went to church just to check the box, that was not sufficient enough. But this entire time, the only thing I needed this whole time was Jesus. And that's the one thing I missed. I went to church. I did everything. But the whole time I did it, I missed Jesus. I mean, are you doing all of this stuff, all of this religious stuff that is good, but are you missing Jesus? See, if you do good works, then praise God. But if you rely on your works, then beware. You know, I am a Pharisee. I'm a recovering Pharisee. You know, I struggle with just doing the right things in my own strength. I struggle with looking God's Word and seeing all the rules and regulations that, that there is and say, okay, if I do this, then then maybe then, then I'll be good. I'm a struggling and recovering Pharisee. But there is a good God in heaven that has the antidote to Pharisees. So we have to, we need to be able to hear and trust divine directions. We need to recalculate our spiritual drive. The next thing we see as Jesus shifts from the Pharisee to the tax collector is this. We must be conscious of our depravity, but focused on his deliverance. We must be conscious of our depravity, but focused on his deliverance. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Here's the difference between the two men. One the Pharisee was conscious of his self-righteousness, but the tax collector was focused and self-conscious about his depravity. And you know what happens? You know what happens when, when you and me lets go of our self-righteousness? The first thing that it allows, what, or the first thing it causes, is it causes us to seek compassion. It causes us to seek compassion. On your guide, it says that it's verse 13, but it's actually 
verse 10. Look at how the tax collector seeks compassion. Two men went into the temple. You see, the one thing about tax collectors is tax collectors, the one thing they didn't do was they didn't go to the temple because they were embarrassed. There was shame. I mean, as they were walking, people were spitting on them, wanting to kill them. I mean, it was a dangerous thing to go to the temple. But that's exactly where this tax collector went. He went to the temple to pray. You know, I told you about when I went, when me and Savannah went to the temple. You know, the whole, the whole experience was sad. But the saddest part was this girl that me and Savannah have loved on and shared the gospel with, we walk in with her and her mom, and we're in this room called the Celestial Room. And the thing about the Celestial Room is this. The walls are painted with gold. There's the most fanciest and expensive crystal chandelier hanging because they want that room to be painted and use the best stuff because that right room right there is the closest that you can get to God on earth. And as I was talking to mom, she was like, yeah, this is, this is the most peaceful room in here. And this is where we come to find divine revelation. So as I'm standing in the back awkwardly, I'm just looking around and all these people are like just praying for divine revelation. And we, we left that room, and walk, we're walking down the stairs. And as we're walking down the stairs, all of a sudden, her mom grabs her and throws her into my chest. And so her mom is right here. She turns me sideways, throws her into my chest, puts Savannah right here, and we're walking down the stairs as people are coming up. Because her next-door neighbor was walking up the stairs beside us. And she did not want them to know that she was home. And you know, my thought was this. How is it that the place where God's presence is, is supposed to be the most peaceful, the place where they're supposed to commune with God, how is it that this place is supposed to be holy, but yet all she had was shame? And how is it in this parable that this tax collector wants to go to the temple to find God, but yet this Pharisee in the temple is shaming him. And, you know, here's the thing. If that's how the Mormons do it, if that's how the Pharisees do it, then it should not be how Grace Church does it. You know, we have a lot of, I mean, we, we talked about, we have a lot of different people that come here. And we got to be careful. Like, no, we, we hate their sin, but we have to hate their sin with love. They have enough shame on them as it is. You know, I remember after we left the temple, we went to lunch with her mom, and we're standing there, and I I just, she left to go to the bathroom. Her her and Savannah left, and I lean over to her mom like, what is the deal? Why is there so much shame? And she just says that because the way the culture looks is if you come back off your mission then you are not worthy. You're not worthy to do it. And her mom's right. She's not worthy. You and me are not worthy. The only thing that makes you and me worthy is the declaration of righteousness that Jesus bestows on us. I mean, let us be careful. I mean, let let this be a place where people can come and find God and not shame.
See, because when we, when we become aware of our depravity but focus on Christ's righteousness, it causes us to go and find Him. It causes us to seek compassion. The other thing is this. It causes us to hate our crimes. Verse 13, But the tax collector standing off in the distance, think about it, the Pharisee is at the very front, the closest he could possibly be to God, but yet the tax collector is as far away, as far away as he could be. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to raise his eyes toward heaven, but was beating his chest. He was beating his chest. I mean, he had no confidence. He knew who he was. He knew what people thought. See, the thing is, if you were a tax collector, guess what? Your mom and your dad would have a funeral for you because their son was dead. This guy had no one. They, were, they, couldn't, even go, they couldn't even really do anything in part of society. Everyone hated them. Where do those type of people go? Well, this, he went to the temple, understanding who he was. See, the Pharisee, the Pharisee looked at other people's crimes to justify himself, but the tax collector humbled himself. I mean, when you come face to face for your sin, what does it cause you to do? Does it cause you to hide? I'm, I'm a hider. Does it cause you to sin all the more, being like, well, I just can't break it, so I'm just going to keep sinning? Or does it cause you to hate it? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, if I had a brother who had been murdered... What would you think of me if daily I hung out with the guy who plunged a dagger into his heart? You would think in your mind that, oh, you must be an accomplice in the murder. He said that sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. How can you love it? See, the thing is, is we cannot love it. See, what this does is it causes us that we're, when we're in the midst of worshiping God, all we can do is beat our chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. God, save me. I'm the most worst and vile person in here. But here's the thing. Though we are great sinners, we have a greater Savior. Your sin might be great, but His mercy is greater. Do not hide from Him. See, the, the, the good thing is, is that when we understand our sin and when we go and we give it to God, what He does is He throws it as far as the east is from the west. And not only that, but He doesn't even remember it anymore. I mean, let us go to the one who can forget our sin. Even though we can't, praise God that God can. I'd much rather be able to remember my sin than God. It causes us to seek compassion. It causes us to hate our crimes. And it it causes us to fall into the hands of Christ. Verse 13, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to raise his eyes to heaven. But he was just beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The other way, so be merciful is a word I want you to think about. The Greek word for be merciful is only used one other time in Scripture. And it's used in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. And it says this, and I'll read it for you. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers, so that he might become a merciful... That's not the word. That's not the same Greek word. 
that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation. The word be merciful is the same Greek word to propitiation. So another way of saying it is God be propitious to me, the sinner. God be propitious to me. What he's saying is God, save me because of your great sacrifice. I have nothing to bring like the Pharisee, but I know that you can save me just because of your great sacrifice. Here's where we find the beautiful word propitiation, which means, which means that this is the way that God's wrath is justified through the sacrifice. Jesus is our propitiation. God's wrath was on us, but because of the propitiation, it was taken off of us and placed on Christ. See, it's not about your work. Your works does not save you. Christ's death and His blood is what saves us. And we do not get Christ's death in His justification by our works. We get it by faith. He gives it to us. We were with, we were with our friend and we were talking about this. And I told her, and we, you know, we tried, we've tried and we've lovingly shared the gospel with her. And I told her, I was like, you know, I was like, you're, you're right, you're not worthy to be on your mission. And the whole time that you've been with us, you've told us the list all the ordinances and the lists that we have to do in place of your gospel. Well, let me tell you, if, if I can just give you the simplest form, the simplest definition of the gospel you've ever heard is this. God takes away your shame and he gives you Christ's righteousness. See, when we understand our sin, it causes us to hate our sin. And as Jesus is saying all this, I mean, think about the thing about the self-righteous guys that are listening. This would have slack-jawed them. It would have slacked y'all them because the religious superstar missed out on God while the moral failure found them. And praise God for that because we all are the moral failures. I have one more quote by Charles Spurgeon as he's commenting on this short prayer. Listen to what Charles says. He says, in the original Greek, the words are even fewer in English. He said, oh, that men would pray with less of language and more meaning. He said, what great things are packed away in this short petition. Remember what the petition was, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Listen to what he says is in this petition. I mean, the rich theologicalness that's in this petition. He says, in this petition is God, mercy, sin, propitiation, and forgiveness. It reminds me of the story that Alistair Begg said. You might have heard it, but I, I, I love the story. He's talking about how the thief, he's, he's bringing up about the thief that was on the cross with Jesus. He said, whenever that thief died, imagine what happened. The thief closes his eyes, wakes up in eternity, and all of a sudden this angel walks up to him and says, how'd you get here? The thief says, well, I don't know. I don't even know where I am. And so the angel calls over, calls over his, uh, his, his supervisor. The angel comes over and says, okay, well, let me ask you some questions. 
Let me ask you some questions, okay? He says, what is your view on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy says, well, I've never heard of that before. He says, okay. He says, well, what's your view on baptism? He's like, I've never been baptized before. And ultimately, the angel says, how did you get here? And all the thief could say was the man on the middle cross said I could come. And that's the same thing for you and me. The only reason that you and me are here, the only reason that we come to the Father is not because of, of the works that we do. It's not because of what we know. But we come because Christ said we can come. See, the great thing is this. The great thing is that we are not justified by what we know and what we've done, but who we know and what he's done. That's the only reason we're justified. See, we have to be conscious of our depravity, but focused on his deliverance. And the last thing is this. The last thing we learn about how do we get home the right way is this. We allow humility to deliver us home. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Like I said, we are so good at just sleepwalking through religious activities that we miss the point of godly living. We're so good at doing all the right things that when we get home, we're not justified. See, Jesus said that this man went home justified. And you know what? That man probably, that man went home not feeling any different. But see, it's not about how we feel, but it's about what Christ declares. Christ declared him righteous. And like our prayers, my prayer is this, is that we will not sleepwalk through church. That we will not sleepwalk through all of this religious activities. You know, while, while closing up, while we're in Utah, we went to Temple Square, which is like where the, the big temple is, the most famous temple. And, you know, we're talking with missionaries. And every single time, everyone asked me the same question. They were like, Caleb... What verse in your religion do you think just encourages you the most? And the one I told him, I think, is the same one that 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 tax collector understood. In Hebrews it says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Here's what that shows me. That shows me that even when I am so ashamed of my sin to where all I can do is beat my chest, I can beat my chest while going to the throne of grace. That as I'm, as I'm so consumed with all my failures, I can say my failures are great, but Jesus, you are greater. See, we know we know how to get home. But so many times, we don't know how to get home the right way. 
as John the Baptist says, I must decrease and he must increase. So will you stand with me? Dear God, we come before you right now, Father, so thankful of your word, Lord. Thankful for what you have accomplished through your God, I'm thankful that, Lord, though we are great sinners, Lord, you are a great Savior. So, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would you would humble us before your cross, Father. That you would show us the love that you have for weary sinners like, like me, Lord. And that, God, we will hear your words, Father, and we respond in accordance to your will, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.